Does Advent even matter when the world is on fire? The title of this article is one that grabbed my attention earlier this week. I wasn't really sure where the author was going. Her name's Sarah Bessie. But I thought, she's got a point, doesn't she? I mean, who are we to think that lighting our candles and singing our songs and hanging our greens when the crises around the world and the grief in our own lives refuse to let up? Who are we to do these things? It's not like war takes a hiatus during these four weeks of holy anticipation. The chemo treatments, the hospital visits, they don't consult our Christian calendar, do they? Our dreams, our bad dreams, our rocky relationships, our aches and our pains don't seem to make space for this season of Advent. Sarah Bessie writes, in these days, celebration can seem callous and uncaring, if not outright impossible. But here's the thing. We enter into Advent precisely because we are paying attention. It's because everything hurts that we prepare for Advent. It's because we have stood in the hospital rooms and gravesides, in empty churches and quiet bedrooms, that we resolutely lay out candles and matches. She goes on, we don't get to have hope without having grief. Hope dares to admit that not everything is as it should be, and so if we want to be hopeful, first we have to grieve. First, we have to see that something is broken and that there is a reason for why we need hope to begin with. As I finished reading that portion, I thought, there's, there's our step one, that's it. On this first Sunday of Advent, Wake up. Let's start by waking up to what is broken. Let's start by being honest about how we're still grieving when everybody thinks we should be over it by now. Let's start by beginning to notice how often we say or do things that are just selfish or prideful. Let's start by being willing to confess and change our behavior, to change our ways in order to serve one another, in order to love one another. Let's start by having the uncomfortable conversations for the sake of healing in Jesus' name. Let's start by naming the systems of injustice in our own families, in our city, and in our nation. So step one of Advent, week one, wake up to what is broken. Let's take a minute to notice. Maybe we'll just sit in silence for a moment. Maybe you pull out a pen and write down a few things. Maybe you share them with someone next to you. But what is broken?
as we begin to come to terms with the brokenness. We stand here heavy laden with our bags of brokenness for the country, for our city, for our families, for our own selves. And now what? What are we going to do with this brokenness? What sense does Advent make? What's the point? I think that Advent is an invitation to stubbornly hold on to hope. Any of you have, a, maybe you're stubborn, maybe your kids are stubborn. Do you have anyone strong-willed in your life? Let's use that. Let's harness that strong-willed stubbornness for good. Let's hold on to hope, and like a kid digging in his heels, he's not going anywhere, and you're literally going to have to pick him up and put him in bed. <laughs> Let's say, no, I am not giving up. There is reason to hope. Everything is broken, but I won't give up. Advent is like our way of saying, oh yeah, we know. We are absolutely waking up to the brokenness in our own lives. We're not letting, we're not putting on the mask anymore. We're going to be honest. Oh, we, we know about the brokenness in our city. We're learning more and more and becoming more and more saddened by it. But we are also holding on to the hope of Jesus like it is our full-time job. Not even a job. It's your whole life. We are shining a light on the ways that Jesus is bringing his healing and the way he is building his kingdom right in our midst, even in the brokenness. We are paying homage to the Christ child who was born to incarnate love itself, to put flesh on the very being of love, who was born to set us free from our own sin and from eternal death. And we are staying awake to the unexpected return of the Messiah, of the Jesus who will come and reign and establish in fullness his goodness and his majesty and the love of God's kingdom and the hospitality of God's table on earth in fullness as it is in heaven. So if step one is waking up to what is broken, Step two, then, is to stay awake. There's a good example of this last night. Kevin and I listen to books on audio, so we're listening to Harry Potter, book seven. Um, if you're a Harry Potter fan, you know that's really, we're in chapter, like, 34. Like, it doesn't stop. Like, the whole book is the climax. It's insane. I can still go to sleep in the middle of the climax. So I'm laying on the couch, like, thoroughly enjoying the book, and then I get warm and cozy and just fall asleep. You get warm and cozy too. And, and Kevin looks over and he goes, oh, she's asleep, I'll turn off the audiobook. So he turns off the audiobook and he tells me later that I woke up and said, oh, did I go to sleep? Oh, I should probably go to bed. 
and then went back to sleep. <laughs> the staying awake part is hard. Once your eyes get that heaviness, like there is no amount of like pasting your eyeballs open that will keep you awake. And Jesus' disciples know full well how hard it is to stay awake, right? How often do they fall asleep on him? Guys, I asked you to stay here and stay awake while I went and prayed. What is the deal? So our second job in Advent is to stay awake. Oh, throw water in your face if you have to. Jesus himself said this morning in the gospel that, that Kellyanne just read for us, Stay awake, or keep awake, therefore, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Jesus offers an example to his disciples that they knew really well. As soon as he started talking about Noah, they knew. It would be like someone mentioning, I mean, Noah, we, we kind of know Noah's story, or something like the Civil War, or Pearl Harbor, or 9-11, something that is so a part of our our culture's fabric that we couldn't possibly not know what they're talking about. Everyone knows. No one will forget. So as Jesus starts talking about Noah and his gargantuan ark, the disciples knew what he was talking about. And, and Jesus says in Matthew 24, 37s in your bulletin, for as the days of Noah were, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing until the flood came and then swept them away. So too will it be with the coming of the Son of Man. So I'd like to point out that there's nothing horribly wrong about eating and drinking marrying and giving in marriage. Those are everyday human existence types of things. Now sure, there was, according to the story of Noah, there was rampant sin, and God was cleansing the world of that sin. I, there's a whole lot to that story. But these things that they were doing, living their lives, were not bad. The problem here was, what if someone had woken up? What if someone had said, you know, I think I'm with Noah. <laughs> Can I get on the ark? What if someone had paid attention and didn't just say, you're crazy. <laughs> I'm just going to go on and get married and raise my family and carry on with my life. They weren't awake to what was going on around them. And they weren't heeding the word of the Lord that Noah was reiterating to them. So they rolled their eyes, they turned their heads, they probably plugged their ears, and they lulled themselves into a spiritual coma. They fell asleep to the reality of God's kingdom. And I'm afraid that's not just something evil people do in the day of Noah. I'm afraid that's something the church in 2019 on Advent Sunday 1 is already doing or at risk of doing. We'll just lull ourselves into a spiritual coma and pretend like everything's fine. 
So first we have to wake up. But then we could fall back asleep. So we have to keep ourselves awake. But how do we do that? Okay, this is where step three comes in. This is why I've seen Advent as the contemplative stream of Christian tradition. This is the invitation. This is why we're immersing ourselves in the prayer field practices of the Christian tradition during this season. Because prayer wakes us up. And prayer keeps us awake. When we pray, we are saturating our broken world in prayer, just like Jesus did. When we pray, we are following the contemplative example of Mary, having our hearts awake and alert, ready to hear a message as jarring as the angel Gabriel's. I mean, what if that happened to you? Would you be awake, or would you just go back to sleep, thinking you must be dreaming? Wake up to be poised to respond to the type of commissioning that Mary was given, the type of life-altering, life-changing type of thing, opening ourselves to Jesus being born in us today as Jesus was literally born of Mary. So our step three, then, is pray. All right? How's your prayer life? How do you pray? How well do you listen? What types of prayer are you practicing? If I asked you what you're praying for, what would you say? If I asked you what you were hearing from God's Spirit, how would you respond? I can tell you with complete certainty that a prayer-filled life is the foundation of spiritual health and spiritual growth. A prayer-filled life is the foundation of the kingdom of God being built on earth as it is in heaven. Without prayer, everything crumbles. A prayer-filled life will see the supernatural, with supernatural clarity, like x-ray vision, that the Holy Spirit is at work around us. Other people will be like, what are you talking about? They will look at you like you're Noah when you tell them the things you are seeing. What? I'm just going to go back to eating my hamburger, thank you. A prayer-filled life is awake to the brokenness. A prayer-filled life is not stupid, naive, ignoring the problems. They are so deeply in tune with it that they are gutted with the same grief that Christ had when he sweat drops of blood because of the intensity of it. When every time they see news of death, and cancer, of wars and protests, of human trafficking and detention camps, they grieve, even though they don't know the people. Their hearts break and ache. That's what a contemplative person does. 
person is able to point out glimmers of God's kingdom being built, even in the midst of the, the chaos. A prayer-filled life is like seeing an alternate universe. I've never seen, what's it called? Stranger Things, because I'm too much of a scaredy cat. But I hear there's the Upside Down, which is like an alternative universe happening. Or it reminds me of Morpheus, what's that called? The Matrix, where there's this, it's like uh, an alternative reality is laid over top of our physical reality. And some people see it and some people don't. That's what happens with the prayer-filled life. You have the eyes of Christ. You see things that other people don't see, and they might think you're crazy, but you are a prophet calling out the things of God. A prayer-filled person doesn't give up hope. They are stubborn. They are anchored to the hope of Christ's birth. They are anchored to the hope that Christ is being born in me today. And they are anchored to the hope that Christ will come again and make all things right. And a prayer-filled person becomes more and more like Jesus. Simply because they are spending every breath with Christ. That kind of reminds me of, of the being, maybe I talk about that later, being underfoot like a toddler. You know, I imagine like the kids, when they're, they're small, they just are like always there. And they're like, get out of my way. I can't even walk with you not here. That's how we want to be with Jesus. Be so up in his space that he can't take a step without you being there with him, inhabiting his space, breathing with his same air, As Richard Foster puts it, Richard Foster is the author of this book, uh, Streams of Living Water, which is where I got these six streams of Christian tradition. And he says, put simply, the contemplative life is the steady gaze of the soul upon the God who loves us. The steady gaze of the soul upon the God who loves us. Sometimes prayer can feel like doing nothing. It can feel like a cop-out. But I just gave you all the reasons, and there are hundreds of more, as to why prayer is the anchor of the action. Out of prayer flows the desire to partner with people who are doing good. As your heart is broken, you begin to see needs in a new way with the light of Jesus, and you begin to feel the Spirit inviting you to do A, B, or C. Contemplation first, then action. So in this season of Advent, Advent 1, year A, I invite you to join me in a contemplative, prayer-filled life. We've explored ways to pray over this last year, each Sunday with our spiritual disciplines, and we will continue in the weeks to come. But regardless of how you pray, inhabit the space of Jesus. 
Let's be underfoot like a toddler or like a cat or a dog or whatever. Let's be right there with Jesus, breathing his air, sitting so closely so that at every moment we never let Christ out of our sight so that we might stay awake, wake up, stay awake, for we do not know the hour at which our Lord is coming.